Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. And while impeachment hearings about one man dominate the news, thousands rally at the Supreme Court for an immigration case that could impact millions. Our liberation is connected to everyone's liberation, to our planet, to worker rights. And that we have one thing to do, that is it's our duty to fight for our freedom and to, for, to fight for our collective liberation. No matter what happens, we got each other because home is here. All around the world, from the Congo to Chile, from Iraq to Honduras, it is young people who are taking to the streets to fight for a future. In that spirit, we present our second feature from our recent trip to Cuba, an interview with two Americans studying to be doctors there. The, the way that Cuba approaches medicine is very community oriented, it's very grassroots, it's comprehensive, it's looking at identifying what is the root of the problem and how do I address that. And that's the only type of medicine I'm interested in learning. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. This week, as the Supreme Court heard arguments in a case that could decide the fate of hundreds of thousands of young, undocumented immigrants, 3,000 people rallied outside the court in an action called Here is Home to demonstrate support for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, which shields about 800,000 young people from deportation and allows them to work and go to school. Demonstrators came from all over the country, including a group that marched 230 miles to D.C. from New York City. Laura Kim from the Korean group Nakasek was among the marchers and one of several speakers who combined DACA with other immigration policy issues and called for comprehensive immigration reform. Because we are one together, we must ensure that not even one of us is left behind in our fight for justice and equality. DACA and TPS must act as springboards for a greater fight, which is a path for citizenship for all. More voices from outside the Supreme Court later in the show. The Supreme Court also considered other immigration-related cases. Chantal James reported on one case that prompted a heartbroken family to travel to D.C. from Mexico. Oral arguments were heard at the Supreme Court on Tuesday for the case of Sergio Adrián Hernández Huareca, a Mexican teenager killed by U.S. Border Patrol agent Jesus Mesa Jr. in 2010. To rally support, SOA Watch and Justice for Muslims Collective co-hosted a reception and panel called Stop U.S. Border Patrol Violence at the True Reformer Building in Shaw. It was an opportunity for people to hear directly from the family members of children from the Mexican side of the border who have been killed by U.S. Border Patrol police without any consequences for the killer. The families of Huareca and Jose Antonio Rodriguez, another teenage boy slain by U.S. Border Patrol, gave heartfelt testimony on the pain of losing their loved ones and their struggle for justice. Introduced and translated by Eduardo Garcia, Tira Elena, grandmother of Jose Antonio, makes her own appeal. Mi nombre es Taide Elena y soy la abuelita de Jose Antonio. My name is 
Tai de Elena, and I'm Jose Antonio's grandmother. Um, As she said um, mm -hmm. that he, her son didn't deserve to die in that way, we also said the same about our child. And we said the same about all the child. Nobody deserves to die in that way. Because all children, no matter what country, no matter what nation, they have the same value. Yes. So this man, Lonnie Schwartz, killed him cold blood. He committed a crime, a coward crime, against Jose Antonio. And instead of owning this crime, when the trial was happening, he just started crying, and he said, I don't remember what happened. To keep up with events and actions Justice for Muslims Collective will bring in the future, follow them on Twitter at DC Muslim Justice. From Northwest DC, this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. The Supreme Court may not decide these and other cases until the close of this session next June. But meanwhile, the same issue, the role of the United States in this hemisphere, brought protesters to the White House on Monday one day after Bolivia's President Evo Morales announced his resignation because of a military coup. Code Pink also demonstrated at a press conference to announce a new so-called Venezuela Democracy Caucus for regime change, supported by Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz of Florida. At the press conference Thursday, Medea Benjamin of Code Pink was assaulted by those supporting this new caucus. But later, D.C. police attempted to arrest Benjamin at her home, saying that she assaulted the congresswoman. Benjamin told Democracy Now! that the arresting officers had no warrant, that they left without arresting her, and that she sustained painful injuries from the assault. And finally, Congress began its first public impeachment hearings of Donald Trump this week and called as one of the first witnesses, Ambassador William Taylor, who offered a revised history of recent relations between the Ukraine and Russia, saying at one point that Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. I asked journalist Aaron Mate, who won the Izzy Award for Independent Journalism this year for his reporting on Russiagate, what he thought of the first day of the hearing. This scandal, much like Russiagate before it, was not driven by a genuine concern for curbing Trump's abuses, of which there are many. Um, we can, you know, go on forever about all the awful things that Trump does. But what they are about is about a very narrow set of grievances between two factions of the elite. And in the case of Bill Taylor, his grievance is that Trump basically briefly interrupted the sending of weapons to Ukraine that fuel a very bloody and useless proxy war between the U.S., and Russia and Ukraine, a proxy war that the U.S. had a big uh, hand in starting. And it's, you know, to illustrate the contrast, back when Obama was in power, people like Bill Taylor, as Taylor even says in his uh, testimony, in the first testimony he gave to Congress, were urging Obama to send uh, arms to Ukraine, the same arms that Trump later uh, briefly suspended. But Obama refused to do it. And that only changed when Trump came into office and he reversed Obama's policy and he started sending that, those weapons and that military aid. Uh, and it was only when he gets briefly suspended that that becomes the genesis for this entire new scandal. And of course now, now they say that the reason uh, they're upset about it is because Trump did it for his own personal benefit 
And I think there's, you know, there's some truth to that. It does look like Trump was trying to leverage this military assistance for his own personal gain. And, you know, we can debate the actual details because it's a bit complicated because there are multiple sets of investigations that Trump wanted from Ukraine. And some of them, I think, actually are legitimate, um, especially when it comes to Ukrainian meddling in 2016, which actually did happen. But even if that's the wrong interpretation, the point is, I think it underscores that uh, the reason this is such a big deal, the reason why it's driving a impeachment scandal, is not based on the actual merits and, and whether it's worth all this time and attention, but because it represents the interests of a very narrow uh, section of the elite. And in this case, Bill Taylor comes from a very hawkish one. And it's been, I think for liberals who see this as a curb on Trump, I think that's worth reflecting on. I followed up by asking Aaron what he is looking for as the impeachment hearings resume today. My hope is that it gets done as quick as possible because now Republicans, very smartly, I think, are talking about dragging out the impeachment trial in the Senate for as long as they can, which would sideline the Democratic primaries. And it would mean that even on the eve of the primaries at the first caucuses in, in Iowa, candidates like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren would have to be in D.C., not campaigning. So I, what I hope is that this thing gets done as soon as possible and that we all return to focusing on actually challenging Trump on, on the issue, not based on this you know, Cold War uh, jingoism, which underpins so much of Ukraine gate. And in terms of witnesses, I think what you can expect is just more hearsay. None of them have actually directly spoken to Trump, except for this guy, Gordon Sondland. A lot of it is based on hearsay and perceptions. And again, those perceptions are shaped by the Cold War views of the key witnesses the Democrats are putting forward. So I think uh, just if people are following, and it's hard to follow, I find all these witnesses that are being put forward, you should look at their record and see whether they actually represent the kind of agenda that we as progressives and leftists or liberals that we stand for. And finally, finally, in culture and media, a federal court has ruled that U.S. government agents cannot search travelers' electronic devices at the border or at airports without reasonable suspicion. The Tuesday ruling by the U.S. District Court of Massachusetts says that agents need specific and individual suspicion of illegal contraband to search a traveler's phone, laptop, or other digital device. The court ruling is the result of a lawsuit launched by the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the American Civil Liberties Union on behalf of 11 travelers who had their laptops, phones, and other devices searched. There are several social justice actions happening this weekend. The Puerto Rican Diaspora Summit is happening Saturday, December 16th, beginning at 8 a.m. at the Elliott School of International Affairs Office of Graduate Admissions in Northeast D.C. The Answer Coalition is rallying November 16th at noon at the White House and at locations around the country to oppose the coup in Bolivia. More information is at theanswercoalition.org. And Refuse Fascism is holding demonstrations Saturday, November 16th, also around the country, including in D.C., New York, and Atlanta, to oppose the Trump-Pence regime. Go to refusefascism.org for more information. And the family and supporters of death row inmate Rodney Reed are holding vigils for him in Texas, Los Angeles, and here in D.C. at the Supreme Court. An all-night vigil that began Thursday night is scheduled to end at 11 
a.m. today, and a new vigil is scheduled at the court for Sunday. Since his family rallied at the Supreme Court last month, 2.9 million people have signed a petition protesting Reed's scheduled execution on November 20th. Reed, a black man, was convicted of killing a white woman, Stacy Stites, in 1996, despite evidence pointing to Stites being murdered by her fiancé, a police officer who has a history of violence against women, including being convicted for kidnapping and sexual assault soon after Rodney was sent to prison. On the ground spoke to Reed's brother at the vigil at the Supreme Court last month. My name is Roderick Reed, the brother of Rodney Reed, an innocent man on death row. And the most important thing I want people to know right now is that there is racism and corruption that exists today. And there's a lot of Rodney Reeds out there, and we have to do something about it. And the most important thing is we have to stand together to abolish the death penalty in, in the corruption in the justice system. My brother is innocent. All the facts speak for itself. All the forensic evidence speak for itself and everything else. But we need to stand up and speak for those people that cannot speak for themselves. The campaign to free Rodney Reed maintains a list of numbers for the concerned public to call and a list of vigils and other actions at FreeRodneyReed.com and on Facebook. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn's in the house. Stay with us. Nope. Nope. Can't hold us down. Nope. Nope. Can't hold me down, there's no gravity in my universe Those rules don't exist to me, you don't believe me You can search, feeling bittersweet Now it's cavities in your tooth that hurts Cause it doesn't work when you're grabbing me Trying to pull me down The earth backstabbing me as I prove my worth If you bite in my style, then who was first? If you bite in my dust, then who was first? Geek down, trying to act wild, don't make it worse I speak the truth when I spit, call it a naked verse St. John, when I spit, let me take you to church uh. Amen, amen, trying to intimidate me And you just, amen And you dealing with an ill super saiyan With a wide vision in the game plan Call that full brain John Illa J, yeah, see that's my full name Great minds on steroids, that's my full swing And I'm out the park, ghetto superstar Spit stupid boss, uh, yeah This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for more international news, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. I think we're going to start with the meeting of the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And we'll go from there. So what's your take on this big summit they had this week? Well, it's a very important gathering. The host nation, Brazil, is a rather curious choice in light of the fact that Mr. Bolsonaro, the current leader, is known as the Trump of the tropics. And 
I'm sure that President Putin and President Xi feel a little uncomfortable meeting with him, perhaps uh, seeing it as supping with the devil even. But Mr. Bolsonaro has his own problems. Recall that this so-called Trump of the tropics was recently in China where he was whispering sweet nothings into the ear of President Xi Jinping after castigating China in his race for the top job in Brazil. He's also incurred some wrath in Washington because in light of the U.S. trade war with China, China has cut back on soybean purchases from U.S. Midwestern farmers and started buying soybeans from Brazilian agriculturalists. And I dare say that those markets will probably be lost forever. That is to say that these U.S. soybean farmers might be looking for another line of work sooner rather than later. Uh, likewise, the Trump of the tropics tried to imitate his namesake by snuggling closer to Israel, including uh, threatening to move the Brazilian embassy to Jerusalem, imitating and mimicking Mr. Trump. Uh, but alas, Brazil is not as powerful as the United States, at least not yet. And so Mr. Bolsonaro was then forced to make a tour of Saudi Arabia and other Arab nations hoping to reassure them that uh, he is not all in with regard to Israel. Then, as we mentioned previously, uh, Lula da Silva, who had been jailed by a Bolsonaro-dominated judiciary, was freed by that same judiciary, not least because of domestic and global pressure. And Lula has been rallying masses in the streets uh, of Brazil since he has been released. Likewise, with regard to the number two power in South America, speaking of Argentina, they have a new leader who's been involved in a vitriolic slanging match with Bolsonaro over all manner of issues. And similarly, uh, to the west of Brazil is Chile, where Mr. Bolsonaro's close ally, Sergio Piñera, the billionaire leader in Chile, has been besieged by protesters uh, in the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands of late in a very significant protest. But with all of Mr. Bolsonaro's problems, and they are many, they are probably dwarfed in terms of newsworthiness by the fact that the BRICS nations voted to institute a, a kind of new payment system that will seek to circumvent the use of the U.S. dollar in terms of trading between and amongst these nations. Uh, this may be the, the beginning of an alternative to the U.S. dollar, and it's certainly a way to circumvent the sanctions regime, a sanctions regime that has been imposed on Russia, on Iran, on Venezuela, on Cuba, on Zimbabwe, on Syria. And likewise, it's striking to note that this takes place in the context of a recent remark by President Macron of France, where he said the U.S. dominated NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, this military alliance, was lurching towards being brain dead, uh, which I think is good news for all peace-loving forces. Now, to be sure, many BRICS problems, many BRICS nations besides Brazil have problems. I mean, for example, look at China, uh, where you have these protests in Hong Kong. Now, of course, uh, unlike the corporate media, we recognize that there are some contradictions in these protests. 
how could that not be the case when we witnessed just a few weeks ago the right-wing senator from Texas, Ted Cruz, donning protesters black and joining the protesters? Uh, how could this not be the case when we've seen protesters actually singing the Star-Spangled Banner in the streets of Hong Kong and welcoming uh, U.S. intervention in this internal Chinese matter? Well, also, I can't help, you know, as a journalist to recognize the very uneven coverage of the protests in Hong Kong and what the Western media, corporate media continues to call peaceful protesters for democracy. Uh, I think either this week or late last week, a man was set on fire. Another person was uh, beaten nearly to death. And we, we already know that police have been attacked, uh, several police stations and actual uh, government offices and buildings either ransacked and or burned, <laughs> you know. And then, of course, we've ta- talked about the involvement of these U.S. Uh, organizations in the protests. So, Well, not only that, but right now, a number of leading universities, including the university where I used to teach, Hong Kong University, have basically become armed camps. You have students who have barricaded themselves in the campus. They're making Molotov cocktails. They're making uh, petrol bombs. But on the other hand, this is really complicating uh, Chinese policy. Uh, what I mean is, is that China has sent a number of mainland students uh, across the uh, border into Hong Kong. They've been fleeing because they oftentimes do not speak Cantonese, which is the lingua franca of Hong Kong. And when they speak Putonghua, the lingua franca of the mainland, this causes them to be tormented and persecuted. I should also say that China has this ambitious plan for what they call the Greater Bay Area, which would include the Chinese cities of Shenzhen and Guangzhou, not to mention Macau, a former Portuguese colony. And Hong Kong was basically uh, was to be uh, seen as the financial center of this 70 million strong Greater Bay Area uh, that obviously has a population uh, larger than that of France or of Great Britain. But they may have to rethink that particular uh, program as a result of these continuous protests that do not seem to be on the verge of ending. But having said that, uh, it's apparent that BRICS is steaming ahead despite China's problems, despite Bolsonaro, the spy within BRICS. And (laughs) it's something that we're going to have to keep a close eye on. So also in South America, uh, much of my attention this week has been on Bolivia and what has obviously been a military coup, even though, you know, in terms of another observation about the press and news organizations, there seems to be some reluctance on calling it that and basically twisting the narrative in many different ways to look over this not only military coup, but apparently a intervention by these Christian fascist groups there. I'm afraid that you're right, and it's quite unfortunate that President Evo Morales found it necessary to flee to Mexico City because basically, apparently, the right wing and these so-called Christian fundamentalists had infiltrated the highest levels of both the police and the military, and they tended to stand aside 
as Mr. Morales and his supporters and members of his cabinet and their families were being attacked. And Mr. Morales felt that the better part of wisdom would be to seek exile in Mexico City. And, and by the way, uh, Mexico City historically has been a refuge for those fleeing persecution. Uh, recall the uh, thousands upon thousands of enslaved Africans from Texas found refuge in Mexico City. Uh, Langston Hughes' father sought exile from Jim Crow, United States and Mexico City, as, the, as did the uh, sculptress of some renown and fame, the African-American woman, Elizabeth Catlin. But in any case, uh, I think that, once again, Washington, D.C. is implicated in this coup, not only in terms of what the stories we've been hearing about uh, CIA and U.S. embassy activities uh, in La Paz, the capital, but also, once again, this organization we keep talking about that's headquartered in Washington, D.C., I'm speaking of the Organization of American States, uh, which Mr. Morales said should be renamed the Organization of North American States, because they helped to trigger the unrest by issuing a rather poorly documented report charging that the election a few weeks ago was studded with irregularities and suggested that there was fraud, even though, once again, there was no documentation, and that helped to unleash this wave of unrest, a wave of unrest that's gotten so terrible that at the BRICS meeting, President Putin analogized what's going on in Bolivia today to Libya, insofar as it's unclear who's in control, there's a kind of chaos in the streets, and it's unclear how the situation is going to eventuate, on the other hand, you can see a different kind of protest once again in Chile, uh, where tens of thousands have come to the streets. But I'm afraid to say that we really can't predict with any kind of assurance what's going to unfold in Bolivia in coming days and weeks and months. Well, I can definitely say that this was very much a topic during my recent trip to the anti-imperialist conference in Cuba, there were lots of warnings there. There were a lot of uh, statements of warning and solidarity with uh, Cuba and with uh, President Morales um, because the writing seemed to be on the wall. And those people who were very familiar with the situation realized how dangerous it was. Well, I guess they had the gift of prophecy. Well, I'm not sure if it's prophecy, but just, you know, being on the ground and, and understanding the danger of, of the opposition against him, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on Brazil and all these developments, things that are moving so fast in, in our world. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you.
chill with my shoulders I feel like I'm losing my focus I feel like I'm losing my patience I feel like my thoughts in the basement Feel like, I feel like you're miseducated Feel like I don't wanna be bothered I feel like you may be the problem I feel like it ain't no tomorrow f the world, the world is ending I'm done pretending if you if you get offended I feel like friends been overrated I feel like the family been faking I feel like the feelings are changing Feel like my daughter compromised and jaded Feel like you wanna screw and that's how I made it Feel like I ain't feeling you all Feel like removing myself, no feelings involved I feel for you, I've been in the field for you It's real for you, right? I feel like ain't nobody praying for me Ain't nobody praying for me Ain't nobody praying for me Ain't nobody praying How's everybody doing? to everyone who stopped whatever they were doing to be here today. Your fight and the fact that you are here today shows that America, Americans in this nation has hope. The fact that we can stand here and protest freely shows that we have hope in America. So never lose your hope, never lose your fire. So my name is Bamba John Bamba, and I am from the Ivory Coast in West Africa. Where are my African undocumented people? Yeah, we're in the house. So I don't take it lightly to be here because even in immigration and undocumented circles, we can have challenges with, with diversity. And we have half a million undocumented black people in this nation. So immigration is not just a Latino issue, it is also an African issue, a Korean issue, an Asian issue, an Indian issue, an American issue. So you heard that uh, I was starring in Black Panther. Um, I wasn't starring, but I was in the film. <laughs> and I was the first one to fight Black Panther. <laughs> so my, my story uh, is like a lot of undocumented people in America today. A lot of us, unlike what the news will tell you is, we came here illegally. No, I came here legally with my parents when I was 10. Many people came here legally with visas, with their parents when they were one, two, 11 month old. And because this country has a broken, outdated immigration system, we cannot legalize ourselves there's no pathway to citizenship for people like us there's 800,000 of us and millions of others who are in a situation where if there were right laws if there was a pathway people would stand in line 
We want nothing else but to stand in line and be able to have our papers. If you're with me, say, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All right. So being in the film industry, away from Washington, D.C., I've been able to see how too often we talk about immigrant immigration as issues when we need to talk about the lives and the ways that those lives are impacted by those issues we need to focus on the people first the central narrative of how we define how or what it means to be American and if we want any chance at moving this political needle especially with the presidential election that's coming up. We know that immigration is gonna be the central issue. So unless we start telling our stories, unless we start sharing our truths, and unless we start telling people who we are, that is the only way that we could create real and lasting change. And that is why I had no choice but to share my own personal story two years ago when this administration decided that they wanted to terminate DACA. Now, my whole career was on the line. I was, I was coming out in Black Panther. I was on NBC's The Good Place. I didn't tell any producer at Marvel. I didn't tell any producers at NBC. I prayed to my God and I said, God, I'm sick and tired of living in fear. I'm sick and tired of being paralyzed by fear. I'm sick and tired of having nightmares. I'm sick and tired of living in the shadows. So, so I decided to share my story with the world just so that Americans in America would get a chance to know that DACA recipients are just like every other American that's walking around. We, we are the teachers of your children. We are the caretakers. We are the servants. We do everything in this nation. And we're also actors in blockbuster films and hit television shows that come inside your home and that you love. So I came to this country in 1992 when I was 10 years old with my parents because they were fleeing political persecution in the Ivory Coast in Cote d'Ivoire. We landed in the South Bronx. Now, I only spoke French and in, in the South Bronx they speak English. So they put me in a Spanish ESL class because that's all there was for someone like me that spoke only French and I decided I'm going to learn English. I'm going to watch as many TV shows like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, movies like Coming to America, just so I could perfect the American accent. I used to listen to hip-hop, to the Wu-Tang Clan, to Refugee Camp, to White Clef, until I could speak English perfectly. So my parents applied for political asylum when I was 10 years old. In... 2014, which is 20 years later, was when that application was finally approved. Now, 
because of the immigration backlog, it took 20 years. And in that time, I was over 21 and I was married, which disqualified me from having a green card. So today, my parents that filed that same asylum case have their green card, but their 10-year-old son and my, my older brother and sister, we are undocumented, standing on DACA because there's no pathway, because of this red tape, because of these politics, I don't have a pathway to citizenship. And not just me, but millions of others are in the same circumstance. So when people say, hey, do it legally, stand in line, just say, we have, give us a line, give us a road. We'll stand in there right now and today. Okay, I'm being told to wrap it up. <laughs> who started this fight way before Obama was even elected, way before DACA even came in the picture. You guys inspired me to share my story and I hope I inspire you to do the same. Thank you. My name is Abril Gallardo Cervera. I am the hija de Raul y Sandra, which are present right here in my heart today. And Arizona is home. I'm an organizer with Lucha Arizona. And this morning, when I walked in those steps into the Supreme Court, I was feeling all kinds of emotions. I was feeling cold. I was feeling nervous. And one thing I remember is to take my, that I had to take my parents which are undocumented and my siblings who have DACA, but also all of my Arizona community who are undocumented, and my black brothers and sisters who are also many of them undocumented. So I was, as I was sitting on the court, it was a big room, there was like 300 people in there, and we were all the way in the back. My, my body felt uncomfortable. I was so tired and I was shaking. And then I started to feel warm with the bodies of the people that are, were sitting next to me. And as I was sitting on the bench, I was trying to look up to see like some of the flowers of decorations that they had. And the only thing that could come on my mind are two things. That no matter what, as I walked out of that room, we got each other. The arguments that happened there, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in June of uh, in 2020, but what I know is that we got each other. And the second thing is that our liberation is connected to everyone's liberation, to our planet, to worker rights. And that we have one thing to do that is it's our duty to fight for our freedom and to, for, to fight for our collective liberation. No matter what happens, we got each other because home is here.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And during my recent trip to the meeting in solidarity with Cuba and against imperialism and neoliberalism, I spoke to two young people in Cuba who study medicine. Ivan Smiley, Houston, Texas. Sarah Almasbahi, Cleveland, Ohio. Tell us about how you came to be a student here, a medical student here. I'm a, a graduate of Fisk University, and how I actually found out about the program was there was a, a graduate school fair at my school that was supposed to have medical schools and business schools, law schools. None of the medical schools showed up, but one of the lawyers at one of the booths, he saw something on the news about Americans studying in Cuba for free. Didn't have too many details, but he was like, you know, you should go check it out. I was like, okay. So I checked it out. It was at a Christmas party that I ran into somebody who actually went through the program, and she got me in touch with Dr. Melissa Barber from IFCO, and eventually the application and getting into the school and ending up out here in Cuba right now. So why here as opposed to studying in the States? It's a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is when I had the interview for this program, I really felt like they looked at my entire application and viewed me as a whole applicant. It wasn't just about my grades, but about my character, what I do. And even when I went to the interview, they mentioned about how I did this and that, and they saw that I taught here and did that and wanted me to explain some things. And I thought to myself, wow, they... They really looked at my application, and that whole interview process was a really warm and comforting process. Another reason why I chose this place, I chose to be away from home and distractions because like out here, I, I don't have family. I, I have internet now, but before it wasn't much internet access, and I really need to be in an environment where I can be focused, as well as being in an environment conducive to learning. Like the students out here have a responsibility to make sure that other students are passing, know what's going on, and know medicine so they can go back to wherever community to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. 
Third reason, I was actually going to have the opportunity to study medicine without working. Because I've been working since I was 10 years old. Had to get an athletic scholarship for college, academic scholarship, work study. And I know my grades could have been better. I could have been a better student. But I'm given the opportunity to study medicine. And that's it. So I can be the best doctor I can be. Go back to wherever I end up. And I can practice how I want to practice without being threatened with money or debt. Like yeah. I could practice and do medicine how I feel like I can do it. Wow, that's tremendous. Yeah, that's tremendous. So, same thing for you. So, I studied international relations and diplomacy. In undergrad, I studied at Ohio State University. In my mind, I always kind of had like a something that drew me towards medicine. I always thought about growing up in my family. I come from, none of my parents went to college, first generation college student. My parents are immigrants from Yemen. And so education is, it's an opportunity that we have that a lot of people would do a lot to get. People in my family would just look at me and I was just going to school and I was like passing through and doing pretty well, but I wasn't nearly a genius or anything like that but everybody in my family would be like oh doctor doctor because it's education it's something that a lot of people feel like they can't achieve so you know I grew up with people looking at extended family overseas looking at me being going to school and thinking about me as like somebody who has the, all these great opportunities but from an outside perspective, looking into the States, it does seem like the whole American dream thing, but you know, we all know living in the States that it's, it's an illusion. Just because you're in the States, you have access to first grade through 12th grade, doesn't mean that you can actually achieve what you want to achieve without being indebted to outside entities. So I also been working most of my life, been working since I was 13. And so supporting yourself through, like medicine is not an option if you're, in the states and you have to work during school you can't go to medical school there's no medical students who are also working right. like part-time full-time while they're in school right. yeah, I guess you not. have to take out loans and so what that means is when you graduate you're indebted to the bank that you took the loan from so you're out you're gonna get jobs that are gonna pay you so you could pay the bank back medicine for me is not it's not just like a way to make money it's like the, the way that Cuba approaches medicine is very community oriented. It's very grassroots. It's comprehensive. It's looking at identifying what is the root of the problem and how do I address that. And if I was to learn medicine, that's the only type of medicine I'm interested in learning. I don't want to put a band-aid on anything. And especially I don't want to take out loans to be putting band-aids on things. Right. And, and not being able to work with people who I know need my services. Or just dispense pills, or it, yeah, yeah, it's it's more of like there there are communities in the United States. Obviously, we have no limit on resources in terms of like the country itself. But there's a lot of communities that really struggle with getting their basic needs met. Mm -hmm. Why is that? I think like the Elam program. The idea behind it is like to take people from underserved communities from all over the world, bring them here give them the tools that they need in order to go back to their communities and make a difference. And I think that's vital because you have people that understand what the community is going through with the tools in order to make an impact.
that's the key right there is like you take people from there give them what they need because obviously in their environment they don't have what they need and then take it back and we can figure out how we can move forward think about Cuba it's not they don't have the resources that we have in the states but look at what they've done with, with what they do have right. you know if a lesson in resourcefulness is out here right. also what he was talking about like stepping out your comfort zone I think like for me there's no like growth in comfort obviously there's stresses in the states that you don't experience here and vice versa but the stresses out here are more of like they're less individual stresses and more like community collective stresses you know so what uh, I guess I want to have you all give people a little snapshot of where you are in your training right now and if you can kind of the biggest takeaway so far from your experience here where I am in my training well the program is is seven years but they count it as well, a pre-med year and then years one through six and I'm in that fourth year and where I'm at right now uh, I finished my rotation in internal medicine last year, and right now I'm currently rotating through OBGYN. And we have responsibilities in the hospital. Even though we're students, we still have to do physical exams on patients every day, do our, our write-ups or evolutions of the patients every day, and we have to present the patients every day while we're doing rounds. When you say present, what does that mean? Well, for example, like the patient I've been, well, patient or patients I've been seeing at the moment, when the doctors come through and have a, when we start rounds, everybody comes in your room and you have to say the patient's name, why they came, the story behind why they came, past medical history of the patient, the meds that they're taking, their initial physical exam, and their evolution throughout their stay in the hospital and then how they're doing the day whatever uh complimentary exams they need and if they have some how are they how do you interpret the results and yeah that's that's an everyday thing okay mm -hmm. but uh one of my biggest takeaways from this education so far just from a practical standpoint is how we're using our hands a lot having to diagnose with like little resources is is fundamental because when we get back to the states we're quick to order tests that some are necessary some aren't and that runs up a bill but we have to work on as little as possible to diagnose and then i guess follow through with whatever treatment methods but that's one thing i really appreciate is, is really hands-on and it's not as hard to get certain experiences for an example certain surgeries that i've been in on but the doctors take you in and of course they they watch over you and they might start off with you just watching maybe the next time you can pass instruments or i've had the opportunity to cut a couple umbilical cords <laughs> with, with supervision and help with with labor but i feel like these experiences i can't necessarily get in the u.s or at least as frequent as i'm getting out here okay. same thing okay yeah yeah, yeah so one thing that I wanted to include last time I, I realized I forgot is we do also get to Cuba through an organization called IFCO. So mm -hmm. if there's other people that are interested in coming, mm -hmm. they can look up our school and also ifconews.org. Mm -hmm. That's how you can find out as an American how you can apply to the program. Mm -hmm. But I'm in my first year of 
died like of medical school so like he said there's a preparatory year so depending on whether or not you know Spanish first semester is A to Z to sciences in Spanish second semester is you're taking basic sciences biology chemistry you're taking some hi a history class a geography class society medicine some public health course type courses but I'm in my first semester of my first year of actual medical school in the didactic portion like kind of in the states you got the first two years in the classroom and then you got your clinical years so he's in the clinic he started the clinical years but I'm still in the like didactic how does that seven years compare to what would be in the states is roughly the same with, with medical school residency and all that as far as residency and fellowships, that's all the same. After we graduate, we have to apply for a residency program, the same oh, as any other, any other U.S. or foreign student that wants to work in the U.S. Okay. But out here, well, normally school in the U.S. is four years. It's two years of like, clinical and two years of theory and right. didactics. Right, right. But out here, we do technically three years of didactics and four years of clinical okay okay i just mm -hmm. wanted and one year like the last year is a, yeah, correct no. me if i'm wrong it's an internship year so basically you're mm -hmm. working full-time as a doctor on, for that last year right so we'll be going back to the states applying for residency and all of that with already like a year of work under our belt right you know okay. so but uh, i didn't mean so it's all you longer lose your <laughs> train of thought no no so that's where you are right now in terms of your studies so mm -hmm. what's your what's your biggest takeaway right now so far based on what you've done so far my biggest takeaway is is i think biggest takeaway is like we're here to become doctors we're here to and it's not not just a, being a doctor means that you're also like a leader in the community you also have other responsibilities because once you view these people as humans who are a part of something bigger than themselves, you realize the impact that you can have and how important it is mm -hmm. to care for each individual right. as a person who has different dimensions to them. So mm -hmm. you got the biopsychosocial approach, biological, psychological, social. So there's factors that have to do with social factors, psychological factors, biological factors that you have to consider when you're treating a patient. Mm -hmm. And then that goes beyond, like the impact of that goes beyond just your contact with them. Mm -hmm. So just the, the responsibility that we have is, is significant. And so we got to put a lot of thought and care into what we do. All right. So uh, one last thing, because I know we want to wrap up. But so I, I'm curious to know if you're following a lot of the debate in the U.S. around Medicare for all, single-payer health care, what you think about that, and also how do you think your training right now is different from what you would be getting in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. So following the news sometimes is a little bit difficult out here because you're not constantly connected all the time, but I am you know, familiar with the debate, and I think that it is possible to have Medicare for all, and I don't think it's as complicated as we make it seem because... Like Canada, I would compare to the states in terms of how the ec economy and all that kind of... And Canada has health care for all, so I don't see why we wouldn't be able to implement it. Mm -hmm. The only thing that would have to change is the dynamic of the health care system because right now it's, it's a business. Healthcare is a business. And I don't think there can be any debate about that because profit is made off of health care. So just changing that model, then you, you just got to move things around, you know, get the equation right. And it's possible, and I think it would be very beneficial because healthcare, out here we learn the importance of prevention. When people have access, people are able to prevent problems. We end up saving money later 
exactly. with specialized cases if we pay attention to them from the beginning. Right. We save money, we save time, we save people's like Lives. quality of life, you know? <laughs> That is the voice of Sarah Amosbahi of Ohio, and with her, Ivan Smiley of Houston, Texas. I spoke to them at the meeting in solidarity with Cuba and against imperialism and neoliberalism, which wrapped up on Sunday, November 3rd in Havana, Cuba. We will continue to bring you more of our coverage from Cuba throughout this month. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, please let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. And thank you to our supporters on Patreon. The music we played this hour included Robert Glasper and Miles Davis featuring Jay Illa, They Can't Hold Me Down, Kendrick Lamar, Feel, and Navasha Dea, Iwa Pele. I'm Esther Rivera. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Thank you.